Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you here. I want to extend a special welcome. I think we've got some Sheridan College students here. I don't want to embarrass you. Could you raise? I would ask you to raise your hand. That's a little bit. Are you said? Okay, there they are. Thank you for being here. <clears throat> I've been meaning to welcome you for a few weeks now. Um, getting out to church when you're in college is not always the easiest thing to do, and I'm, I'm thankful you're here. Glad you're here. So this still stands, uh, the story I'm about to tell you, <clears throat> as the worst naval disaster during a, a peacetime era. This happened back in 1923. There was a training mission that was going on, and it was a flotilla of seven vessels. They were just off the coast of California, and they were led by Lieutenant Commander Hunter in the lead destroyer. And they were going down the coast of California. They were coming up to an area called the Devil's Jaw when a thick fog descended down on those ships. Now, uh, the lieutenant commander was known to be an exquisite navigator. As a matter of fact, he was a professor at the Naval Academy. He taught navigation. And he made his calculations. So when that fog came down, he thought for sure he knew exactly where they were. Unfortunately, he did not. And all seven ships ended up piling into those rocks. That's a, that's a picture from that moment. Piled into those rocks right there on the coast. Now, Commander Hunter was described this way. He was, he was known for being self-confident, decisive, and, what other call, and, and he had what others called a magical infallibility to guide ships. So naturally, all of those ships were willing to go right into the fog with him. And unfortunately, it ended in disaster. 22 of those sailors were killed in this training exercise that involved these seven ships. Perhaps this morning, you're sort of feeling like a passenger on one of those ships. Maybe you've got a certain degree of confidence in the one who's leading you in whatever area it may be. However, you've come across a time now of transition and you are losing some confidence. Transitions in life come in, in all shapes and sizes. And none of those men on those ships had any idea that they were headed right to their death. Had full confidence in their leadership. Maybe this morning you're feeling that way because of loss, because of circumstances that are outside of your control. Frankly, maybe you're feeling that way because you're sort of wondering where our nation is right now. If, if we're in anything right now, it is a time of transition in the United States of America. And maybe you're wondering what's going to happen in November. And you're wondering if we're like one of those ships in the fog, headed towards demise. Whatever it, may be, whatever it may look like, you're feeling this time of transition that you're in. And what's on the table right now is both leadership and change. Both of those things going hand in hand, leaving us wondering what may happen next. And the subject I want to talk about this morning is 
Well, how do I handle changing times? How do I handle changing times? We're starting this new book of the Bible today, the book of 1 Samuel. We're going back into the Old Testament. We'll be in 1 Samuel uh, until Christmas and a little bit into the new year. It'll take some time for us to go through. And we're seeing the Israelites going through a time of serious transition. It begins at a critical time in Israel's history. Uh, it, was, it was an enormous move. They were going from a time of judges. If you recall the series we did in the book of Judges, uh, we called it Israel having no sheriff in town. It's like, who's in charge right now? And when you get to the end of the book of Judges, it was said that in those days Israel had no king. Everyone did as he saw fit. And it was horrific what was going on. It was very difficult to preach those last passages in Judges when you saw the violence that was going on between these different tribes in Israel that were supposed to be united. And God brought in these judges, these warrior kings, to be in charge. It was a fail. And now they're going into a new and critical time of their history. God is going to bring in a monarchy. Samuel, the prophet, is going to be the mouthpiece. And it's going to be a new chapter. And I love the way R.P. said it last week. God revealed his salvation to all mankind, starting with Israel. And salvation is going to start with Israel with a monarchy in a new kind of program that's going to be happening. I want to start out this morning by reading all of 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, this is a lengthy passage. I will ask you to stand with me. However, if you get tired during this, if you've got a, a little one in your arms, feel free to sit down while I'm reading this. But we'll read all of 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting with verse 1. <clears throat> there was a certain man of Ramathame, Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jer Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, son of Zuf, and Ephrathite. Okay, I got through that. Okay, that was, it took a lot of rehearsing to get those names down. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other Penina, and Penina had children. But Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from a city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. 
Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. For all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. <clears throat> then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman <clears throat> remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli, and she said, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. <clears throat> For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, if I have, therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. You may be seated. So again, we're starting this new series in 1 Samuel. It's about trusting God in times of transition. The one constant thing in life is change. In our life, we are going to go through change. And leadership is essential as we go through change. And we are going to see it here in the lives of these Israelites. Again, the prophet Samuel being the mouthpiece of God, preparing them for what was to come. One of the problems these Israelites are going to have is that when the king comes, their faith will become misplaced. I think them, just like us, it's very easy for them to place their faith in human institutions instead of God. So this morning, I want to approach the subject this way. I want to do it in a problem-solution-application kind of way. First, we'll talk about God's people. They need truth, and they need godly leadership. This, secondly, we'll see the solution that God provides righteous leaders. And then finally, how do I handle changing times? And as we go through this, remember, I would say that each and every one of you, in some place, in some venue in your life, you are a leader. By virtue of being a Christian and people knowing it, people will be looking to you and at you to see how you respond to things. So let's then start this morning by, by addressing this problem, that God's people need both truth and godly leadership. 
So um, we immediately come in this passage to a man uh, named Elkanah. And the people of God, you saw it there at the end of the the book of Judges, they were in trouble. Uh, No one was doing the right thing. They were doing what was right in their own eyes. And there was a lack of leadership. It was a time in Israel when there was no king. And we get to this guy, Elkanah, and we're told that he has two wives. Now, this never goes well, okay? It just does not ever go well. We see it there in verse 2. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Uh, There's a strong precedent in the Old Testament for having two wives. Oftentimes, if the first wife was, was unable to bear children... A second wife uh, would be taken to help bear children, and uh, that would help the name. They didn't have a concept of eternality. They weren't really aware of a heavenly kingdom, so they needed their name to continue, so they needed sons. So they would take this second wife, but, but this was a lack of faith. Now, the Israelites were accustomed to this. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the three real forefathers of The Israelite nation, all of them had wives who struggled with infertility. And they took matters into their own hands, except for Isaac. Both Abraham and his grandson Jacob, they would take matters into their own hands. And it did not go well. It didn't go well between Abraham's wife Sarah and her handmaiden Hagar. It didn't go well between the two wives of Jacob, Rachel and Leah, even though he was kind of tricked into taking two wives. And this theme of infertility was common among the Jews. And it's part of mine and my wife's story as well. And it was, it was horrible for women in that time to suffer through infertility. And if you're here and you've known that pain, you know that it's difficult and hard as well. And God does not always open the womb. But in the case of these men, he does. But the fact that Elkanah took two wives, it is showing a lack of faith in God and his program. And then Hannah's pain also, you may have caught it there in the, the chapters I read it, it was compounded by this, this really bad priest. Listen to what happens in verses 12 through 14. Hannah, who was distressed and, and weeping, uh, it, it says in verse 12, she continued praying before the Lord. Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart, only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. I do this a lot, by the way. I, yeah, she's shaking her head yes. Um, Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman, and Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away. Is this what a hurting, grieving woman needs to hear from her spiritual leader? No, this is compounding her own pain, but this is the state of things in Israel right right now. This guy, Eli, he's got to break with reality. You'll see how bad his sons are as we go along. And it's only after she argues with him does he get it. And he judged her incompetently and her pain. So there's this lack of godly leadership in Israel, and the people were turning to other beliefs. You know, without God people will always default to a state of confusion. You're seeing it playing out in our country right now. We're reaping the fruits right now of what's called postmodernism, where there is no absolute truth. 
And we're seeing it playing out right in front of our eyes. But you know what? People never turn to nothing when they turn away from God. They will turn to some kind of a belief system. They'll turn to other avenues of truth, other religions. As a matter of fact, there was an article that came out in the Atlantic. Um, it was citing from various polls that from 1990 to 2007, people's belief in the devil increased. Actually, it went from 55% in 1990 to uh, 70% in 2007. There's a few things they believe contribute to that. There was an American historian named Adam Jortner at Auburn University, and he made a very interesting observation. He said, when the influence of the major institutional, the major institutional churches is curbed, people begin to look for their own answers. At the same time, there has been a rebirth in magical thinking. American culture has become steeped in movies, TV shows, and other media about demons and demonic possession. There's a fascination with it. People desire a knowledge of the supernatural. By the way, there's an increase in tarot card readings as well. And why is that? Well, because people want answers. And if they're not willing to go to God for those answers, they'll look for some other supernatural source to get those answers. By the way, one of the newest religions in America is UFO worship. I'll leave that right there. So what's the... What's the solution to this? And we do see that God provides righteous leaders. And we saw it there uh, in that chapter we read, in that passage of 1 Samuel. We see that Hannah's faithfulness and pushing through that horrible pain, the horrible suffering, getting a little support for her own husband other than him taking another wife. He did have her in mind. She, he gave her some sympathy, but she gets a little reprieve from anywhere not being able to bear a child. Verse 7 says that she wept, that she didn't eat. So what did she do? Time after time after time after time, she faithfully goes to the house of the Lord and she prays. She doesn't know if her pain is going to be taken away or not. We get to verses 10 and 11. It says she was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, that will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor, she says, shall touch his head. Now that's the Nazarite vow. If you, you may or may not be familiar with the Nazarite vow. Samson, the book of Judges, was a Nazarite, meaning they, they would let their hair grow long as this outward sign of a vow they had taken. Uh, that they were going to be, they were consecrated to God in a, in a special kind of way. They would abstain from alcohol their whole life. They would never come into contact with a corpse. So it was a special kind of vow. So his hair would grow out. She was setting him apart in this Nazarite vow kind of way. But then after being accused of, be, of drunkenness by a, a priest that shows her no sympathy, how does she respond in verse 16? Look at this. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman. Just stop right there a second. What does she say to this no good priest? She says, I'm your servant. All along I've been speaking out of great anxiety, pain. She was vexed. She shows him this respect that he does not deserve. 
She exemplifies this faith and this humility. And what happens? She has a son. She lives up to her vow. As soon as her son Samuel is weaned, she takes him to the temple and says, Lord, here he is. He's yours. Do with him what you please. This king will turn the tide. I'm sorry, this prophet who will usher in kings is going to turn the tide in Israel. Now, they're going to have good kings. They're going to have bad kings. But a leader was going to come. So the faith and the humility of this dear woman was going to turn the tide, provide this spiritual rebirth in Israel. I love what one commentator says about Hannah. Hannah's effect on Israelite society came through the gentle forces of faith and motherhood. Through Hannah, the point is made that women of faith played a legitimate and even formative role in shaping Israel's history. Hannah's faith turned the tide of the period of the judges by producing the transitional figure, Samuel. I'm just curious. If you were led to faith, if, if, if the first time you heard the gospel and you prayed with someone to put your trust in Christ, if that was with a woman, would you raise your hand? Okay. A lot of hands are going up around the room that gentle faith that gentle humility a lot of times around little tables in a Sunday school classroom thank God for our, our faithful women and notice it starts with just doing the simple right thing this is what Hannah did she simply continued doing what she knew to be the right thing that simple next step you may have heard of this guy before <clears throat> St. Francis of Assisi. Uh, he's a, he was a priest <clears throat> back in the 13th century, a time when the church had come under horrible um, times. It, it was corrupt. They were, they were doing all kinds of things they shouldn't. He would be a key reformer in the church in the 13th century. But do you know how he got a start? He had gone into the local synagogue or, or you know, the local cathedral there. Actually, it was a cathedral. It was, really a, it was just a tiny church in the town he lived in. And he walked in and he, and he prayed. And then he looked around and he, he saw the place in disrepair. So he went and he got some bricks. He got a bucket of mortar. And he just started fixing up the, the building. That's how he got his start. It wasn't because he, he shipped off to a major seminary or a major school. He didn't do a miracle. He simply saw what the next right step was, and he took the next right step. This dear woman Hannah, just because of her faithfulness, God brought this prophet Samuel into the world. What next right step do you need to take? What's the simple next thing that you need to do? Maybe you just want to start by cleaning up your room, picking up your socks so the dog doesn't get them. So then how can I apply this? How do I handle changing times? <clears throat> I want to suggest three things here. And by the way, broad-scale change begins with individuals taking responsibility. I don't believe in the anarchy mob rule kind of deal. That's not how we go about bringing 
lasting and broad scale change. Nihilism doesn't work that way. So first of all, pray for your leaders. Pray for godly leaders. And there's two parts to this. First of all, um, pray for your leaders no matter who they may be. They may know God. They may not know God. We are still commanded to pray for those leaders. This is from, uh, this is from 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 3. I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. I talk about this a little bit in the last series that I did, that we are called to pray for leaders. Even the ruthless Caesars of Paul's time deserve the prayers of the people, and it pleases God. So we need to be praying for our leaders. But in addition to that, we need to be praying for more godly leaders to assume control. I was so thrilled when I saw so many names that I recognized on this ballot for the local Sheridan elections recently. Thank God that some of you decided that you have something to contribute in local government. Praise God. We need Christians in, in local government. So pray for our leaders and pray also that godly men would assume these positions of power. We need them to be there. And then secondly, be a godly citizen. Be a godly citizen. Let me ask you this. Let's say we get a wonderful uh, a, a wonderful, godly president or leader or governor or whomever it may be. What good is it to have a wonderful, virtuous leader if the people all under him are sinful and ungodly and in no way living in the way they should? What good is that going to do for a place? And Christians need to lead the way in being godly citizens. Um, I came across a story, actually, I, a, a quote I want to share first. This is from Bill Arnold. And he talks about this way that Christian citizens can chip away at the evil in a society. He says, as the waves of the sea slowly and gradually alter the landscape of the seashore, we need billow after billow of godly people swelling up to contribute their influence on our culture and slowly to chip away at the evil in our society. Boy, didn't you love the descriptions of what Joel Bailey is going to be doing here over the next few months? Chipping away at some of that evil in our society? There was a police officer named Lawrence DePrimo. You may have heard this story. Um, a police officer in New York City, <clears throat> I believe it was, came and saw a man um, sitting on the sidewalk. He had no shoes. He had no socks. He said he could see the man's blisters on his feet from a long ways away. He stopped and used a hundred bucks of his own money to go into a store and buy the man's socks and shoes. That's what being a godly citizen looks like. Taking a step like that, whatever, however it may come across, whatever need that may come your way that isn't overwhelming and something that you can do a good blessing towards. So he bought this man these shoes. Um, and, then, and then finally, um, pray through suffering. Pray through suffering. This is the example we have of this dear woman, Hannah, who kept faithfully doing the next thing that she needed to do. And I've got brothers and sisters around this room that are suffering, and suffering deeply. 
my friend Gary Copps, I, I don't know if he's here today or not, but if he just walked in. <laughs> Thank you, Gary. Gary is not a complainer, and I didn't ask his permission to, can I share this, Gary, what I'm about, you don't know what I'm about to share, but it's good. Thank you. Um, Gary's in severe pain. He's in severe back pain. He's in severe hip pain. He's not been able to get any relief. He's been sleepless for weeks now. At the same time, I've seen Gary show up at three different occasions for prayer around the community of Sheridan. I have a friend back in West Virginia, one of my best friends, actually. His sister uh, has lost her voice. She's got ALS. Doesn't know how much longer she's going to live. His mom just put something on Facebook. She's watching her daughter suffer and die through this terrible disease. And she made this statement, with all my pain, I can still say that God is wonderful. I don't know what you're going through. Some pains people suffer with are pains that aren't physical, they're emotional, that, that no one else can see. But I'm going to encourage you to look at this example of this this dear woman, Hannah, who even though she was suffering, she pushed through the pain, she kept praying, she kept serving God. Don't give up, keep at it. So in conclusion, cope with changing times by praying for leaders, being a godly citizen, and, and praying through pain and suffering. I want to close with this excerpt from... Uh, this is a book called Leaders Eat Last. It was written by a man named Simon Sinek. He's got some videos out there on Facebook and YouTube. You may have heard of him before. He's kind of a, an expert on the millennial generation. And he was studying leadership and, and teams that work well together. And he was studying members of the military and wanting to know what's the secret to, to team success. And he kept arriving at this same assumption. He said, these are just a special class of people. They're better than us. But he said, while working in Afghanistan, something happens that completely changed his view. He was at a base in Afghanistan that came under rocket fire. Uh, and it was so bad that they had to stay on that base. They were isolated there. But he said it was through this experience he learned what service really means. Because he saw those people get activated and start carrying out their job in the middle of the rocket fire. And he said that through that experience, he saw that service means giving to others with no expectation of anything in return. And he goes on and concludes this. He says that all of us can become a good leader by serving others. And he says the rank of office is not what makes someone a leader. Leadership is the choice to serve others with or without any formal rank. Leaders are the ones who run headfirst into the unknown. They rush toward the danger. They put their own interests aside to protect us or to pull us into the future. Leaders would sooner sacrifice what is theirs to save what is ours. And they would never sacrifice what is ours to save what is theirs. This is what it means to be a leader. Whatever you're going through right now, whatever you're suffering with, even in the midst of the pain, keep praying. Don't forget to serve. And remember that God is with you nowhere, wherever you may go. So please pray with me.
Almighty God, we are in times of transition. And Lord, in this time of transition, I pray that you would help us and enable us to be the leaders that you would have us to be. I pray that we would seek to serve others. And God, I pray that we would never, ever neglect the discipline of prayer. Lord, it, it can be hard sometimes. God, we can't, we can't see you the way we talk to people normally, but I pray that would never deter us or keep us from getting on our knees and calling out to you through our pain, through our suffering. I pray that for our, our country, God, that Christians would show this upside-down world, this upside-down country, what it means to be a godly citizen, that we would seek to meet the needs that we can, to love others well, and that we would do this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. To the King of Abraham.